Hi, welcome to the Metal Detecting Show, episode number 22. My name is Kieran, and believe it or not, I have been detecting for nearly 30 years. This week, I continue my series about the history of coins where I chat about Celtic coins. We have a regular tech timeout where this week I talk about how to test your metal detector and of course some updates from my adventures in metal detecting. So let's get on with the show. Hey, thank you for listening. We're at episode number 22. I hope you enjoyed the show this week. If you want to give me feedback or interact with the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at Detecting The or Instagram at The Metal Detecting Podcast. Or if you want to pop me an email to Kieran at TheMetalDetectingShow.com. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. So this week's adventures in metal detecting, well, nothing much happened this week, with a week of inclement weather culminating in Storm Ellen battering the coast, needless to say, the beaches are primed for a major hunt this weekend, so I have penciled in a day detecting at a local hotspot. In other news, I want to give a quick shout out to Peter Hutwelker under the username of Peter underscore J underscore Hut on Instagram, so give him a follow. Peter reached out to me just today to tell me that he's really enjoying the podcast. Thanks, Peter. It is always great to hear positive feedback. It really keeps me going. I got into it again this week with the archaeologist, but this time on Facebook. I knew I shouldn't have, and I knew it would trigger me, but I did, and it did. It was the standard discussion about how metal detecting is illegal in Ireland, which it isn't, and I felt compelled to set that wrong to rights. Well, in true fashion, the archaeologist in question refused to yield even when I produced statements from the governing bodies to validate my point. But I actually gave up when I realised this archaeologist wasn't even living in the country, but virtue signalling from afar. So let's continue with our brief history of coins. Last week we went from Greece to Roman Britain and I hinted that Britannia already had coins by the time the Romans conquered in 43 AD. And those coins were Celtic coins, not Celtic, but Celtic, derived from the Celts. So the Celts actually minted coins from late 4th century BC to the 1st century BC, but early coins were influenced by trade and the supply of mercenaries in Greece. Early Celtic coins in the main copied Greek coins, especially the coins of Macedonia, and specifically the coins of Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. With the northern Gaulish tribes copying Macedonia and the southern Gaulish tribes copying Greece, these copies depicted Greece topics and subjects, but over time the Celts adopted their own style, such as Apollo on the obverse and the two-horse chariot on the reverse. Now, that doesn't sound very different, but where they differ was that these Celtic coins were very symbolic and abstract, so picture a standard Greek coin, but imagine it was drawn by Pablo Picasso. With these abstract motifs reaching a peak with the coins of Parisi in Belgic or Northern France. The Celtic tribe of the boy, the boy from Bratislava who gave their name to Bohemia and Bologna, developed the Biotech, which depicted a king on horseback, an image still in use today, with Slovakia using this image on their five krona coin. Sounds familiar? Well, it seems that copying Greece is strong in countries of Celtic origin. So not only were they copying Greek coins back in the 4th century BC, Slovenia continued to copy Greece, who also put their origin coin, the Athenian owl, on their euro. Celtic coins continued to be produced with abstract images, and these images not only contained images of gods and goddesses, but images of giants trailing severed heads on ropes and horsemen charging into battle, 
but it is safe to say that each and every one of them was a masterpiece and I'm afraid I do not do them justice describing them here. So get your Google Foo on and search for Celtic coins. It was the Eubornes tribe from Gallic Germany that minted solid coins with the classic triple spiral that has become synonymous with Celtic symbolism and considered a good luck symbol. Celtic coins were either struck or cast, where casting required pouring pure gold into sets of clay moulds which got destroyed after every use, requiring repeated manufacturing of these moulds, a very labour-intensive process. Striking coins required a die to be produced, allowing the coin to be struck between the die and the anvil repeatedly. These iron or bronze dies and anvil sets allowed for mass production of Celtic coinage quickly, with all the time taken in the production of the dies to an accuracy of less than a millimetre, which if you think about it, is pretty amazing. So back to Britain, Britannia's often overlooked when considering Celtic coinage. But considering that over 45,000 Celtic coins have been discovered in Britain over the years and a Trinivation, another word I'm saying wrong, a Trinivation tried of, another word, Camulodum, Camulodum, which is modern Colchester, began minting coins in the 1st century BC. These coins depicted horses and wheat sheaves being common motifs, but with the Roman invasion, Celtic coinage started to incorporate this Roman influence with the abstract motifs being replaced again with Roman gods and rulers, until they were totally replaced by the Romans, being bred out of existence, if you know what I mean. And that's it for this week's History of Coins. Next time, I will discuss the coins of the new world. Up next is this week's Tech Time Out, where I chat about how to test your metal detector. Time for this week's Tech Time Out! <laughs> this week, I want to cover how to test your metal detector. You see a lot of people doing air tests on their detectors, but is that the only test you can do? And is the air test an accurate representation of a metal detector's performance? So let's get the elephant in the room out of the way. If you're detecting long enough, you will fall into two camps. Those that believe an air test is a valid test of performance and those that do not believe it validates performance. And I'm afraid for the believers, I firmly sit in a non-believer camp. All an air test shows is a metal detector at its best performance in the best conditions with zero mineralization to contend with, and that is not indicative or real-world testing. I'll draw an analogy quickly. Remember when you were a kid and you would be amazed how loud the alarm of your watch would be underwater? Well, that occurred because sound travels more efficiently underwater. You could say water is the perfect medium for sound to travel. You would be amazed with the difference in sound above water and below, this is the same with your metal detector, where clear air, with no obstacles, behaves like water and is the perfect medium to transmit electromagnetic induced current. The ground is like taking your watch out of the water only to notice how dampened and low your alarm sound is. Using air testing as indication of depth or ID is fine on its own, but using air testing to compare detectors is not a valid comparison as different detectors operate differently in and out of mineralization and believe it or not every piece of ground has some level of mineralization for example a vlf detector will perform better in an air test than a pi detector does that make the vlf detector better i think not so what tests can you do on your detector the tests you can do relate to the features your detector has for example depth response recovery sensitivity and discrimination now, in an ideal world, you would test these features with 100% repeatable swing over calibrated fine pucks, normally iron, but for the purpose of these tests, you should in the least have a test bed and a test bed that has been designed specifically for these tests. 
Remember that these tests are only relevant to you and to hold them up as a true reflection of the detector is a mistake as it is a test of how you and your detector perform. So starting with sensitivity, the definition of sensitivity is the measure of your detector's ability to detect an object of specific size. Remember, what you are adjusting when you adjust your sensitivity is essentially the size of the object you can detect. A detector on full sensitivity will detect very small objects. So how can you test for sensitivity? Well, what question are you asking? You are asking what's the smallest item I can detect at various sensitivities. Well, do exactly that. Bury in your test bed the smallest preferred target you want to hunt for. I would recommend iron or silver for this test as each is at either end of the conductivity scale. Obviously, if you go with iron, you will need to run your detector in all metal mode or equivalent. At what depth I hear you say? Well, if you've been listening to the podcast, you will know that adjusting sensitivity has little to no effect on depth. So pick a depth that makes sense to you. I would go at about 8 inches or 20 centimeters. So you've buried a small piece of silver at 8 inches in the medium of your choice, like earth or even wet sand. I once took a bucket of wet sand home from the beach to use as a test bed. Madness, I know. Put your detector on full sensitivity and check to see if you can pick up the test piece. If not, then you know your detector is not sensitive enough to pick up X size object at X depth. So you will need to adjust the size of the test piece. Now, if you can pick up at full sensitivity, adjust down your sensitivity till you can't pick it up. This will tell you at what sensitivity you need to set your detector at so as not to pick up an object of the same size as the test piece. You can repeat this test with ever-shrinking test pieces at full sensitivity to give an indication of your sensitivity range. Speaking of depth, now how do you test the depth of a detector? No, not with an air test. I hear you chant. Well, did you know that the majority of depth gauges on your detector's visual display indicators are calibrated, in inverted commas here, to the depth of your object, if that object was an American quarter. So if your detector picks up a coin and the VDI says it's 8 inches down, then if that coin is smaller than a quarter, it will be closer to the surface, but if it's larger than a quarter, it will be deeper. So bury several quarters or similar sized coins from your country. Every country has a quarter sized coin, which is just under an inch or just over 24 millimeters in diameter. Bury these coins at various depths. I would start at 20 inches, stepping up every inch to 12 inches. Again, test to find the coins. You should be able to pick up a quarter at 12 inches, but if you can't, there may be something amiss with your detector. Step through the test pieces till you can't detect the test piece. Once you can't detect the test piece, this will indicate the range of depth your detector will operate under and also show you that if your detector can barely detect a quarter at 12 inches and if you're in the field getting a solid deep coin signal and your detector indicates that it sits at 12 inches, you will know that it's bigger than a quarter. So final test this week, how would you test for response? Well, firstly, let's be clear what response is. Response is how quickly your metal detector can process the signal it gets from the coil and presents it accordingly to the user. If there is a slow response, this will leave your detector open to target masking, as it hasn't responded before another piece passes under the coil. So we must be careful not to confuse response with recovery, which is the speed the detector recovers after responding. So what's the test for a response and how would you measure it? Now, I know manufacturers can spout off X microseconds is, is the response time, blah, 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 blah. This means nothing in the real world. Think about it. 
I think the metric for response is the minimum speed the coil needs to travel at to ensure a good signal. I'm aware recovery has a part to play here, but have you ever got an iffy signal mid-sweep only to get a great signal when you slow down over the spot and sweep slowly? That's response at play. So to test this effectively, you would need to be able to measure your swing speed and log in your mind's eye the speed at which the signal starts to degrade. And this, I'm afraid, is beyond the capability of most detectorists. But you could place a test piece at the depth you have previously determined to be the max depth and swing at speed over the spot. It should be iffy at this depth, but if not, push it a little deeper. Slowly reduce your swing speed till the signal is just no longer iffy. That's the metric I would go with. That is the speed that your detector has to move to ensure a solid signal at maximum depth. Next week, I'll continue this tech timeout on how to test your metal detector, where I will talk about recovery, discrimination, and some tests that you may not have thought of. Okay, that's it, my ladies and gentlemen. I hope you like this episode of the Metal Detecting Show podcast. If you like this content, please don't hesitate to tell your friends. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And if you feel like taking your appreciation to the next level, feel free to leave me a positive review on any of the podcast directories of your choice. Check out the website www.themetaldetectingshow.com for this episode's show notes. Check out our Patreon page if you want to help the podcast stay alive or just want to buy me a coffee. Just search for The Metal Detecting Show. The link is in the show notes. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode and we will catch up with you all again next week. Get out there, eyes down and happy hunting.